Hello everyone. We hope all of you are enjoying the Psychedelics podcast series. It has been a very special journey for us to bring you the information. But while we researched the information for the Psychedelics series, we also happened to bounce upon some very interesting information. This past Friday, June 18th, 2021, was the 50th anniversary of Richard Nixon announcing war on drugs. As we have delved deeper through the Psychedelics podcast series, we cannot miss the damage that the war on drugs policy has caused on societies world over. So to address that, and it is also something that we won't be able to address directly in the Psychedelics podcast series, we have decided to do a two episode special. This one you're about to hear is part 1 of that two episode special which includes a recording of a live Q&A session that we did through Twitter Spaces with the experts in the area. Take a listen and part 2 will be the one where we will explore why the war on drugs has not worked through an interview with a former undercover cop from the UK. Neil Woods but before that here is part 1. Thank you everybody. for joining us today it is a very spontaneous session here uh from us a bit last minute but also something that we just realized uh a few days ago and we did not want to miss the chance to actually do something on this very notorious anniversary uh which is the 50th anniversary uh of Nixon declaring drugs were public enemy number 1 and as a result of that um there was an concerted all out effort um uh, to kind of prohibit drugs uh termed as war on drugs um and what this was this actually was done probably 50 years ago around the same time 50 years ago you might probably have had Walter Cronkite on CBS come up and announce that Richard Nixon just announced uh with the complete approval of the bipartisan committee etc that the drugs were bad and drugs were public enemy number 1 and there was going to be war on drugs and and there was going to be a specialized organization to actually work on this uh called as the DEA which we all know and the evidence since has actually changed we knew quite a bit back then but now we actually know a bit more since the enactment of that prohibition law and what we have done here is we have assembled a group of very diverse individuals uh here um and i would just pass on the mic to them in just a second we have uh professor julia buxton uh we have dr alex belzer and we will also have uh joe neil very very soon um on the panel and all of them julia is a criminologist yeah, and also a drug policy expert uh on both uh the drug policy as well as drug wars Alex is a clinical psychologist uh, previously at Yale and currently now the chief clinical officer at Cybernink. Um and uh, Joe Neal is a psychopharmacologist uh, at University of Manchester and also the 
the chair of the Psychedelics Working Group at, at Drug Science UK, a charity organization founded by Professor David Nutt. Um, so with that in mind, uh, I will actually hand it over to Jojo, my co-host, to just say a few words and then hand it over to Julia for the introduction and then we'll just go around to Alex after that. Jojo? Hi, thanks everybody for, for showing up and um, I'm really fascinated to hear everybody's points of view on on where we stand with the war on drugs and, and um, where you think we can go from here. Thanks, Arun. Absolutely. Thanks, Jojo. Uh, Julia, would you like to give a brief introduction about your current role? Uh, and you also have a very prolific uh, work history as well. So if you can please tell us about that, that'll be awesome. And then we'll move on to Alex. Okay, well, my um, thank you ever so much for having me. It's uh, it's lovely to speak to you and Jojo again, Aaron. Um, and to be advised on this, my, my current role is uh, watching the England and Scotland football match, which you've tore me away from quite happily to participate in this. Um, but normally my day job is I'm a criminologist at the University of Manchester, um, where I'm a British Academy global professor who's looking at the uh, shifting nature of illicit drug markets and the impact of, uh, of Brexit on British drug markets. Fantastic. Alex, over to you. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Alex Belser. I, uh, as Arun said, thank you for having me. I'm a, a psychologist and the chief <clears throat> clinical officer at Cybin. And, 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 you know, interestingly enough, I, um, I, have, I have a master's degree in criminology, which is something that I was fascinated with because I was working in prisons and jails um, in, in, with people involved uh, with the, you know, on the other side, uh, on the uh, incarcerated side of the drug war um, as, for many years before I switched over into treating, treating people as a psychologist. Uh, and my, my focus and specialization is really on conducting work with psychedelic uh, medicines. So I, I get to do research trials with drugs like psilocybin uh, to treat depression, anxiety, cancer distress, uh, alcohol use disorder, um, obsessive compulsive disorder at, at, at uh, New York University and then at Yale. And um, I also get to work with MDMA. Uh, these are Schedule One drugs in the United States, and um, it's it's fascinating to try to do research with them under the current rubric. And it's it's good to be here on the fiftieth. Well, I don't know if it's good to be here, but here we are on the fiftieth anniversary of the War on Drugs. Thanks, Alex, um, for being here, um, Julia. Let me get started here with the with the first uh, kind of laying the groundwork, which I think you would do a fantastic job of. Uh, tell us a bit more about um, how the current drug policy, uh, in a nutshell, what it means, in, and let's just divide it uh, into into kind of two segments here. One is the the uh, the addictive drugs, and which of which opioid drugs like heroin and cocaine are uh, are part of, and then you basically have potentially what looks like non-addictive substances or psychedelic substances which don't have the similar properties to what the opioid drugs do. So can you just tell us about what the sociological impact of war on drugs are um, at this point of time? Um, okay, well, obviously coming from a, a kind of non-pharmacology perspective, more of a kind of social historian perspective, I think this kind of 
delineation between how we understand the uh, so-called addictive drugs like heroin or cocaine or dependence-inducing drugs, and then the non-addictive psychedelics, um, but then also, you know, other um, intoxicating uh, substances such as alcohol and such as uh, tobacco. The real challenge that we have right now is that all of these substances are basically dealt with massively inadequately. Um, and the main point to people like David Knott at Drug Science is obviously that things like alcohol and tobacco are, are more problematic. They cause more violence. They, they're responsible for more kind of public health impacts. And they're just subject to regulation. Whereas the addictive drugs and the non-addictives in this kind of delineation that, that you've, you've presented here, in, um, they're both dealt with, those two classifications are both dealt with under this kind of all-embracing system of international drug control. Wherever you're living in the world, whether you're in Ghana, whether you're in Germany, whether you're in America, you know, we're all subject essentially to this same international system which is administered and overseen by the United Nations. Um, and this system is now well over 100 years old. It dates right back to 1907. Um, and the way that this international system has kind of evolved the management of these, these substances outside of alcohol and tobacco is through a, a system of criminalization, a framework of criminalization. Um, it's highly supply-focused, which means that the, the emphasis of enforcement efforts is to really try and eradicate these substances at the sites of their production and manufacture. Um, and the response to those who are engaged in the production, the trafficking, or the possession and use of these substances is through the criminal justice system. So what we've evolved here is this highly punitive framework um, as a means of controlling access to the supply of these substances, as a means of trying to repress access to these substances. But it's a system which has completely and utterly, I would argue, failed on all counts, and most particularly in its responsibility under the, the 1961 Single Convention um, to protect and promote the health and well-being of mankind. Um, so, you know, we have this really problematic, I would argue, international framework of of controlling these drugs, whereas conversely, the system for regulating alcohol and, alcohol and tobacco, arguably more problematic and dangerous substances, is very weak, um, is focused more on a lack of system of regulation, um, and is largely down to the preferences of national governments, unlike international drug control, which is a binding uh, system of obligations on all of our states. Fantastic. I just want to welcome Joe Neal, who has finally been able to sort out the technical issues. Joe, do you want to say hi and just give us a brief introduction and then we will move on with the next question. Okay. Yeah, sorry about that. Can you hear me? Yes, we can, yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's a miracle. Aaron, I'm so sorry, everybody, um, for this. Um, yes, old person technology, I'm afraid. We don't go together very well. Anyway, yeah, so I'm uh, Joe Neal, Professor of Psychopharmacology at the University of Manchester and Chair of the Drug Science Medical Psychedelics working group. Um, and if, if I have time, I'll explain why I've decided to change my career, to give up research. I've been a, an academic researcher all my, all my, all my career um, and focus on psychedelic medicine. Thank you. Fantastic. Th thanks, Joe. Uh, so with that, Julia, I think we just wanted to kind of ask you um, the next layer of the question. Uh, you are also a big um, kind of uh, you, your research interest has also been in areas where these policies have actually not just not worked, but you actually know exactly why they may not necessarily work. 
can you just tell us a bit more about what the sociological impact of the war on drugs has been, uh, especially in the last 50 years or so? Gosh, sociological impact in the last 50 years, that's, that's huge. Um, what I would really kind of try and focus this down on in particular from the perspective of the work I do um, is firstly on the kind of gendered aspects of this um, and then secondly on development aspects. There are there are other people who, you know, do far more fantastic and influential work on aspects such as, you know, kind of the racial dimensions. And the key thing here is the way in which um, drug policy has been policed and the impacts of drug policy policing on specific communities across the world. Um, and the, the key argument really is that drug policy and its policing has been used very much as a tool by various governments in order to kind of coerce and control um, deviant groups, political oppositional groups, you know, those groups in society for which um, drug policy has emerged as a very, very, you know, helpful and legitimizing mechanism for repression um, of opposition groups. Now, for me, the key thing that's really, really been important in my work are two aspects of this, which is, uh, as I said before, um, development and gender. So if I just turn to this question of development, I think what's really, really fascinating in the way that the international drug control system has emerged is that for over 100 years that we've had this kind of model of international regulation, the primary focus has traditionally been on these kind of raw materials, these naturally occurring plants and substances, as you said, such as opium, uh, cannabis and coca. And overwhelmingly, these are cultivated in countries that we call today the global south, the developing countries. Um, and the way that international drug control has, has evolved, I would argue, has been highly, highly detrimental uh, to the economic interests of these countries because, you know, they have this kind of comparative advantage in the, in the cultivation of these types of crops, which have been only criminalized because of an international system which I would argue has been very much developed by the wealthy advanced industrial nations of the global north. Now, the enforcement of criminalization has led to, you know, these very violent and very coercive um, eradication uh, exercises in places such as Latin America, Southeast Asia, Southwest Asia. And the result of this was firstly, obviously, to kind of remove any economic potential that these drug crops as they're called, could have for these countries. But it's also caused enormous, enormous economic destruction. Um, it's caused ecological destruction. It's led to social and political violence. And so when we're talking about trying to achieve things like sustainable development goals, it's impossible for those countries which are really the eye of this drug war to achieve things such as the economic development, poverty reduction, gender inclusion, because so much of their money and resources is having to be being pumped to it into eradicating these kind of drug crops. Also, the system of international control means that they're very much kind of at the receiving end of the export of U.S. crime-fighting models and drug crop eradication frameworks. And ultimately, we're seeing that these developing countries are the ones that, to my mind, are the most negatively impacted by this kind of supply-side-focused counter-narcotics effort. So that's just on the development aspect. Very quickly on the gendered aspect, which probably speaks more to your, your question, Aaron, of the, you know, this kind of 50-year impact. What we know, particularly since the post-Cold War period, which is when we had this real escalation of, of criminalization and suppression strategies, which in the 1970s becomes this kind of US-led uh, war on drugs, 
is that we've seen, you know, the levels of, of criminal, as it's called, drug use, continue to increase and to rise. And so in this respect, criminalisation has been an abject failure before we even begin to think about um, wider health costs and the limitations that this drug war imposes on things like research. Now, as more people have been kind of coming into the use of drugs, it's overwhelmingly been men. Men are the, the main users of drugs, they're the main enforcers of drug laws, they're the main victims of drug wars, and they're the main kind of prisoners who are incarcerated as a result of this, this approach to controlling and regulating narcotics. And this has meant that in the research, kind of in analysis, um, in academic writing, the role of women has historically been overlooked. And in particular, since the post-Cold War period, what we're seeing is that more women are coming into the illicit drug trade, either by default of having male drug-using um, partners or drug supply partners, or simply as drug users autonomously and in their own right. We're also seeing more women who are involved in cultivation, in supply-side activities, and or the, you know, the kind of factors driving this are varied, more economic autonomy. Um, increases in female head of household poverty, a range of factors which means women are now imported or involved in the illicit drug trade. And what I've found in the more recent OEDP collection with my colleagues um, Giovanna Margo and Lona Berger um, is that the way that women are impacted by drug enforcement is very, very different from men, um, but it's also hugely, hugely detrimental and disproportionate for women. We're seeing more women going to prison, we're seeing women receiving higher sentences um, than men traditionally, you know, kind of for the same kind of, of offences. Um, and we're also seeing women, you know, simply denied the kind of treatment and health services because of the stigma and the prejudice which is attached to women um, as drug users. Um, so the sociological effects of this, that's just from the perspective of, you know, kind of global development and gender. If you roll this out across class, across race, uh, we're seeing that the impacts of this drug war have been, have been hugely regressive. Um, for many, many sectors of society, both in terms of race, in terms of gender, and in terms of geography. Sorry, I have a, a quick kind of question. I think there's a, something that I like to kind of clarify for my own mind, because I do come from a very conservative upbringing, for better or for worse. Um, you know, Nancy Reagan might as well have been my mom. It was, you know, all drugs are bad, kind of thing. Hmm. Um, and, and I think there is perhaps some worthy discussion in trying to um, tease out are there differences between the plant, plant-based plant drugs like psychedelics um, and versus what, um, you know, Heisenberger, you know, represents in New Mexico and making crystal meth in a lab and, and the destruction that's caused by um, methamphetamine, methamphetamine. And, and drugs in that class. Is there a distinction that we should be focusing on? If that question's uh, directed to me, Jojo, I would, you know, kind of in the kind of pharma- pharmacological terms, I'll leave that for infinitely more qualified uh, people than me to be able to comment <clears> on. Um, but I think what you're actually highlighting from, from a kind of sociological, historical perspective um, for me is that ultimately, you know, these, these different types of substances in terms of the enforcement, you know, from, from my perspective, it's, it's really quite an irrelevance in terms of the rise of the kind of synthetic drug markets that we're seeing now. You know, we're talking about methamphetamine. I was listening to this extraordinary presentation the other day by um, Mike Power at Manchester Met University where he was doing the presentation there on this, you know, massive, massive increase that we're seeing now in methamphetamine production in Europe. Um, in the Netherlands, you know, traditionally this part of the world didn't have a methamphetamine problem. But we're seeing synthetics increasingly take over the markets in this part of the world as well. 
And, and this rise of these synthetic drugs, in many respects, is a kind of displacement from the failed war against these, um, you know, kind of plant-based narcotics. So the levels of harm outside of the pharmacological terms and purely in the historically focused terms is cumulative. Um, so, you know, whatever the difference are in terms of these separate drugs themselves, in terms of the enforcement practices, this is both leading to this kind of constant escalation and constant deepening of a war, which simply cannot be won. I was just saying, maybe this is a great time to actually bring in Joe as the pharmacologist in the group, and then we will we will probably go on to Alex to answer this question as well. Joe? Um, I mean, kind of simplistic. It's a really good question, you know, uh, and I think the misunderstanding around psychedelics um, probably arises for them being considered cla- or or they are class A drugs in the Misuse of Drugs Act in you know in um, all other countries as well you know there are huge penalties um, you know the same penalties as for for other class A drugs and and they're pharmacologically they're very, very different. And, you know, I've always known that because as an animal researcher, the key test that you would always use um, and that farmer used to test whether their drugs are going to cause dependence um, is whether an animal will willingly work to obtain administration of that drug and cocaine, opiates, even nicotine, animals will do that, you know, alcohol, um amphetamines, it's really easy to get animals to self-administer those drugs. They won't touch psychedelics. They don't, because they, in terms of, um, you know, how they impact on the brain, they don't interact with the brain reward pathway, uh, the dopaminergic pathway that I'm sure many of you, you know about. In in the same way, I mean, they just don't hit it. They are, you know, they, they produce an altered state of consciousness and so animals aren't interested in them. They don't actually produce many behavioral effects in animals. I think that's, that's pointless studying that in animals. Certainly you can't look at efficacy um, because, you know, the animal brain just isn't evolved. The cortex is not thick enough. And what they do in humans um, is so profound um, um, that, that it doesn't make sense. And we know that these drugs work as well. And interestingly, so there's this misconception that these drugs are addictive. And if you look at the global drug survey data, um, people don't use them in that way at all. You know, some people use them for fun, for sure. I, Julie, I was listening to your podcast earlier. God forbid we're allowed to use drugs for fun, you know. Um, but they're kind of not even habit forming the the average trend is that most people use them three or four times a year and most people use them to change their perspective on their position in the world and their interaction with um you know with the planet and and nature um and kind of to heal themselves from you know mental health problems their anxiety their depression their trauma and you know, I could. I don't think this is probably not the right time, Aaron, to to go on about um, psychedelics. But the reason that I decided to give up research, and I was such a died in the wool researcher, you know, I absolutely loved it and finding out new things, solving problems. But drug discovery for psychiatry is 
broken. Pharma pulled out of this area 15 years ago, big pharma. Um, and that's what I've worked in all my life from a an early stage drug discovery in the preclinical, you know, in, with the animal, developing the animal models. I should say there's been some horrible work done in this area and, and my approach has always been the David Attenborough style, you know, the ethologist, you have to take advantage of the natural behavior patterns of the animal. So the model that we established and, and the test, you know, I believe in them, but we came nowhere. I, and I saw such brilliant molecules come and go and fail at phase three um, or phase two, actually. Most of them didn't get beyond that. But that in itself is a huge amount of work, a huge amount of money. Um, and to see no real benefit for patients was absolutely heartbreaking. And if you think about the kind of the serendipitous discovery of the first antipsychotic, so um, chlorpromazine, which is actually an antihistamine, calms people down, um, sedating actually, and, and the first antidepressant, imipramine, you know, in the 1950s, we haven't really had all that much innovation in psychiatry and the way we treat mental illness, um, certainly pharmacologically, really since that time. Obviously, we understand the brain a lot better, the technology is a lot better, but really in terms of what patients get access to pharmacologically, we haven't really um, come very far, which is terrible. And if you compare it to cardiovascular, cancer medicine or liver or kidney, any, any other sort of discipline. Um, so we've all kind of indigenous populations have always known that, that psychedelics um, work. Uh, they've used them for spiritual purposes. They've used them to treat addiction. So that's just, I mean, I'm rambling now, but just coming back to the addiction, psychedelics are anti-addictive and that's where they were used originally in the original research as well in you know in the in the 1960s and 70s before Nixon shut this down um, and because of that change in perspective and, and they heal people I always say that the four things about psychedelics are they heal people we don't do that in psychiatry we manage symptoms it's they don't it's not a once a day treatment so you have no side effect burden because it's a once or twice or maybe once every six months treatment. The effects are incredibly long lasting and they in induce neuroplasticity in the brain, which, um, you know, I'm trying my best with exercise and, and, you know, not watching too much telly and all that, but, but the neuroplasticity effects of psychedelics are, are really, <coughs> really important. So the effects are very long lasting and they're safe. So having them as class A Schedule One drugs makes absolutely no sense. Um, and you know, they, in, if you look at the um, multi-criteria decision analysis work that David Nutt has done with Larry King, you know, they come nowhere in terms of harm to the harm to people and harm to harm to sorry the user and harm to other people. And alcohol, of course, comes top. So it's. Alcohol and horse you know, riding, right, Joe? So. <laughs> ah, well, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, so, actually, while I'm on, I know I should stop talking. Um, two landmark trials have just been published. A phase three trial with MDMA to treat PTSD 
by the map, sorry, in the States. You know, and Rick Dublin has been fighting the DEA for at least 30, 40 years on this. 67% of the people treated with MDMA with PTSD, which you talk to any psychiatrist, it's very tough to treat those. Many people are, are resistant, did not meet the criteria for a PTSD diagnosis after they were treated with MDMA. Of course, it's MDMA-assisted therapy, psychotherapy, you know, so there's, there's lots of that involved because this is a very profound experience for people. But that is an absolutely astounding result. And um, Robin Carhart-Harris's trial comparing escitalopram, which is probably the best SSRI antidepressant we've got, with psilocybin, primary outcome measure, they, they're equal, they came, across, came out as, as having the same efficacy, but all the secondary outcome measures, psilocybin performed much better. Things that matter, like um, you know, quality of life and, and relationships with your family and all those sorts of things, and other um, uh, depression scales. So they, those are, and the, the MDMA trial is a phase three trial, and the results are really spectacular. Anyway, I'll, I'll stop there now. Sorry, Aaron. No, 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 that is perfect, thanks, Joe. Joe. Thanks. Actually, I was going to just anecdotally say, um, Joe, thank you. I, I wish you had been around when I was a teenager to talk to my parents. Um, they had found out that I was recreationally doing um, LSD and MDMA, and they immediately put me in, in drug rehabilitation center <gasps> for 45 days. So um, <laughs> nobody, they wouldn't believe me. It wasn't addictive, and that it wasn't it wasn't as as monstrous as as they were led to believe it was. Joe, Joe, but that's a terrible. I that's an awful oh, yeah. thing. I'm no, so sorry to hear totally that. Separate. No, no, but, no. But what I I'd really like to hear. I think because you, you brought in some some great uh, data about the, the latest studies, and I think we have Alex here from Cybin and, and can bring us some of the clinical perspective on those studies and, and the work that he's doing, because I think that's important to, to highlight those um, outcomes as well. Oh, absolutely. Without that, you know, we won't have these licenses as, as medicines. But Jojo, just sorry um, before you start. Um, I always tell my students, talk to your parents about this stuff because um, it's it's the conversation that you must have with you, with your family. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, Joe, I, I, I really appreciate that, and uh, I this is Alex Belser. So I, I I'm um, I just want to say I, I got to be a, a study therapist, uh, an investigator on the trial, the MAPS trial, where we treated people as you described with severe post-traumatic stress disorder uh, with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. And, you know, I just, it's one of the most profound and compelling experiences as, a, as somebody who's a clinician, you know, trained to work with people to do traditional talk therapy or other even alternative modalities. Um, but to see how uh, incredible results can come in very short periods of time. We got to work with individuals who were uh, war vets from the war, the American war in Afghanistan, uh, people who had car crashes, people who had uh, survived profound sexual assault and rape. And um, the experience of um, providing a safer space for them to come and do deep trauma work, capital T, uh, trauma work, um, with MDMA, which 
um, has this incredible effect, uh, sometimes called ecstasy or molly, um, has this incredible effect that it allows people to get out of their trauma loops. You know, people may be able to say, I was pinned down in a combat fight on the field, uh, but they don't actually, they're not, they're in a loop where they're sort of like, like a, like a boat where they fall out of the boat in the river and they sort of go into a gyre and they just spin around and around and around the loop and are hyper vigilant and afraid and have a lot of terrible comorbidities, including, um, depression and anxiety and keep flashing back to their experience. The MDMA permits in this experience that, um, people to confront profound fear. Uh, and it sort of takes the sort of amygdalic response, uh, fear center offline for a few hours. And with intention and in the safer context of working with two therapists in the study, people are able to describe in um, profound, heartfelt detail what what happened to them. Not just skip over it, but actually like talk about it in a real way and unwind that trauma loop so that they pop out of that gyre and, and are able to move on in their lives. And it's, um, it's an incredible study, you know, it's published in the journal Nature, Nature Medicine, uh, a highly reputable journal, uh, and, and, uh, and two-thirds of people no longer <clears throat> met criteria for the disorder. These are people who just didn't have PTSD, they had severe PTSD, no longer met criteria. This is an incredible blockbuster first result for a phase three trial. And uh, MAPS is continuing with its second trial. The, the American uh, FDA has, has granted breakthrough therapy designation to that medication. We see, uh, similarly, the FDA has granted BTD, or breakthrough therapy, designation status to two other trials of psilocybin to treat a major depressive disorder and psilocybin-assisted uh, psychotherapy to treat uh, treatment-resistant depression. And these are very, very promising treatments. Um, and really, it's it's an incredible clinical experience to, to do it. it. It is different than other experiences. And these drugs are still, 50 years later, on the Schedule 1, um, uh, are still defined as Schedule 1 substances, which means, at least in the American terminology, I think it's very fairly equivalent to Class A in the UK, that they have uh, are deemed to have no currently accepted medical use and drugs that would have high potential for abuse. And... You know, um, when when drugs like psilocybin and, and MDMA are getting breakthrough therapy designation status and being published in journals like this with, with profound clinical benefit, um, and we see in both animal models and in human study experiences that people don't develop, um, there's just there's literally not an abusive potential for these for these medications. Um, it, it seems like really it's time to go back to the policy decision around what is the most appropriate classification for. These substances, um, from a safety and um, and certainly from a chronological perspective, yeah. So I, I I'm happy to talk more about psychedelic ex, uh, experience, but um, yeah, please go ahead. Sorry, I, I it, this platform I'm still all over the place, and I apologize if I cut people off. Um, I'm just curious, if, especially with the scientific rigor of a publication in Nature and um, publications of that caliber, what what is the path forward towards readdressing the scheduling of these substances? It's not automatic, I wouldn't imagine. What do we need to do? Is, is it a lobbying effort? Is it, what is the process? Does anybody here know that? Well, I think with medical cannabis in the UK, it took years and years. But actually, I think what really did it, there have been several reports and so on, 
was the um, the kind of personal stories, and it was the children with um, untreatable epilepsy um, who responded to cannabis. I think that's what fine and the public, you know, um, discussed. I think that that children would be not helped when we know there's a medicine that can help them, um, but it's illegal and it, and it's Schedule One. And it became in the UK they changed the law to make cannabis a medicine. Of course, they won't they won't legalize it uh, for adult use. Um, which they have, of course, successfully in so many states, which is pretty terrible. But they did, they did legalize it as a medicine in the UK, and I, I you know, it, it was the person, those personal stories. And we were so psilocybin, all psychedelics. They're still in Schedule One. While we're on this, so it's it. What we in the UK, the Home Office is that you can still do research with Schedule 1 drugs. And actually, that is true. But what they don't admit is that it's hugely difficult. Uh, I had to, you have to apply to the Home Office for a controlled drugs license. I think it's probably similar in the US, maybe not quite so bureaucratic. I had to wait a year to get a controlled drugs license. I'm in the School of Pharmacy. We, all UK institutions and the NHS have uh, exemptions to research schedule and, and to dispense schedule two drugs. So as David quite rightly said, schedule one, the definition is there's no um, medical use, legitimate medical use with schedule two, you know, heroin, cocaine, and so on, there's, there's medical, med- ketamine, there's medical use. Um, so huge delay, huge cost as well. Um, for a clinical trial, James Rucker and King told me that it cost him over £20,000 because each licence cost you over £3,000. And that's before you've even started your clinical trial because every every location where the drug is kept, a huge bureaucracy, it's taking at least a week to fill out the form, massive stigma. People working with uh, Schedule 1 drugs are terrified because, they, you know, there's just this fear and stigma and there's stigma around psychedelics anyway. I was... Um, wanted to give psilocybin to the, my rat and I fell out with the vet about it because he was paranoid that they would do them harm when you know when so many millions of people take them without, without harm um, so that is it that, and, and I did some qualitative research on this and in the UK you find that the rich universities will pay the money and the researchers are highly motivated that they will get the control drug license People in small institutions, they don't have the admin support, they don't have the money, and they just will not do research. So this is a massive hindrance to research and to clinical trials because so many more, uh, so much more research would be going on if, if these drugs went in Schedule 1. We prepared a very long evidence-based support for the government a year ago, and still they have done nothing. We had a debate in the... Um, House of Commons yesterday about the Misuse of Drugs Act and, you know, it, it, things are changing, but far too slowly in this country. Can I, can, sorry, Joe, it's just, it's just Julia here. Um, I mean, you know, that, that's kind of the, the, the dire scenario on the domestic level. And I think I'd just like to kind of reinforce also that this is an international problem. 
um, because, you know, we have over 300 psychoactive substances that are scheduled under the international conventions. The problem is certainly at the domestic level, but it's also at the international level. I mean, this is the wider crisis here because, you know, it's the scheduling under the 1961 Single Convention and the 1971 Convention on Psychotropic Substances. And any scheduling decisions, um, you know, as this relates to all of these substances that we've been talking about um, during the session, these scheduling decisions are taken by the Commission on Narcotic Drugs, um, which, you know, kind of is the, is the, the key policy organ of the, of the United Nations. It's meant to do this in, in collaboration with the World Health Organization, um, but ultimately, the CND, this Commission on, on Narcotic Drugs, this is an intergovernmental body and it takes decisions by consensus. So, you know, it's, we don't have kind of a medical framework or even a kind of much domestic latitude in, in rescheduling decisions because the conventions really dictate that this is in the hands um, of this international body, international governmental body the CND. And the only way that countries are able to kind of wiggle around this, people like Dave Judy Taylor has written extensively on this, is by being able to demonstrate that there is a, a kind of superseding sovereign right to health. And that's how countries like Switzerland or Portugal or Canada have been able to move ahead with things like legalization, decriminalization of cannabis or, or you know, kind of legal uh, provision of heroin, these kind of substances. But, but in many respects, and as the Canadians admit, they're, they're going against the conventions. They're, they're breaking the conventions. And so what we're highlighting is a, is a bigger crisis within the international drug control system, as well as massive national level restrictions. Julia, I think that's a fantastic point. I'm going to come back to that, those examples in, 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 a, in, a, in a couple of minutes here. But I know Alex is probably itching to speak. Alex, over to you. Well, you know, I'll just add, you know, to, to buttress what Justin said is, you know, the, the mechanisms are, there's different pathways, right? So. Uh, one mechanism is this medicalized pathway where we conduct rigorous clinical trials, and, and at least in the United States, the Food and Drug Administration can review all the evidence uh, that's submitted and then make a recommendation on, on to the drug, uh, the DEA in the United States, and, and the DEA can make uh, a decision as to whether to reschedule, for example, psilocybin or MDMA. Um, but that being said... Um, you know, it's really a cultural shift in many ways. I think that um, it, when I started doing this sort of psychedelic research in in New York in the early aughts, people thought you were nuts. I mean, this, this people it was you were deemed to be a real, um, uh, like really out of left field for saying I'm going to do research with drugs like psilocybin mushrooms. Um, now today, you know, the, the direction of the wind has changed. Uh, and, and in part because of incredible early clinical work that shows, hey, um, this class of medications um, used to be not only normal and standard practice in psychiatry in the 1950s and 60s, um, but it, it works across multiple indication classes. It's safe. It's well tolerated. People um, do really good work with it. Uh, and so we see uh, we see the direction of the wind has changed. And so culturally, there's been an openness, including, you know, the proliferation of universities going from a half dozen, you know, uh, 15 years ago that were even contemplating doing this to well, nearly 100 universities around the world today doing psychedelic research. Um, even so, I think that the, the barriers to conducting research with Schedule One substances are profound. Um, you know, they can be crossed, but they are, they, the barriers do keep a lot of uh, potentially great research out, I think. Um, the other the other pathways in terms of the war on drugs is you know what we're seeing 
at least in the United States here in our experiments in federalism, which is we have uh, decriminalization efforts happening in multiple uh, city and municipal jurisdictions. So, for example, in Oakland and Denver and other places have uh, my hometown here in Seattle are have either are considering decriminalizing plant medicines or psychedelic medicines um, at the local level, at the state level in Oregon. They've pr- uh, passed with Proposition 109 and, uh, and another um, uh, state-level uh, uh, initiative. Proposition 109 uh, would create a, a regulatory framework to allow for the legal administration of psilocybin uh, um, in a medical context. And they also passed, a, a, not quite a Portugal-style, but a, a decriminalization um, statewide pathway. But the federal-level uh, 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 scheduled substances act still applies. So, um, you know, so from from that perspective, the war on drugs is alive and well. And um, you know, we didn't really cover this in the first instance, but I, I just want to pull back this back in. You know, when I was a kid and I stepped foot in college, I started. I had the opportunity at my university to volunteer, just as a volunteer in prison. And so, in the United States, it, it was a, an awakening to, to me of. of what the American experiment in mass incarceration looks like. And this is not the same in other countries, but in the United States, we have over 2 million people behind bars in jails and prisons today. That is the highest per capita, and that is the highest in terms of total population incarcerated. We have 7 million people under criminal justice supervision, either incarcerated or on probation or parole. This is higher than any other country you know, around the world, uh, in, in the United States. And the harms to families and communities and incomes, uh, largely for an incarcerated population that is um, where the majority of them are either uh, in some ways involved in drug crime or related crime because of the criminalization of substance use, or because they themselves may have uh, addictions uh, that need uh, to be addressed and um, in a public health framework, rather than a let's uh, lock lock them up until they until things change approach, uh, which has been shown through massive amounts of evidence to be not an efficacious strategy. Um, so, you know, this has been going on for for a long time, um, and, uh, and 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 really the, the needle hasn't budged much on it. Um, Fifty years later, except to make. Um, you know, conducting psychedelic clinical trials a little bit more costly and difficult to manage. But the the overwhelming cultural experience uh, in terms of the racial disparities, in terms of class disparities, gender disparities, um, the effect on LGBTQ folks, I'm, I'm queer and do research on these intersections, is is really been astronomical. It's difficult to even um, imagine um, how profound the impacts have been. That's fantastic, Alex. I think I just want to kind of pick on that just just a little bit. So feel free to answer this. Uh, and this question is also for Julia as well. And then after this question, we'll probably open it up to the audience to ask any questions um, because we will probably, we have another 10 minutes left of the session. Um, so the question really is, is that I think it's clearly that we have established through the discussion here that the number one, psychedelics are different from the traditional opioid drugs. They are non-addictive and they are not used as chronically, uh, except probably in the case of microdosing, we can probably come to that separately. Um, But most people tend not to use it that way. So therefore, the abuse potential is largely less. uh, And at the same time, 
there are efforts, both clinical uh, as well as kind of lobbying efforts based on the scientific evidence that is being generated to kind of overturn some of those. But then there is this other um, kind of elephant in the room that I think most people uh, have also looked at, which is the the impact of of kind of opioids, and especially when we talk about war on drugs. I mean, one of the biggest kind of impact that it's actually had is the is the uh, increased violence and increased kind of uh, kind of criminal activity uh, that that comes with uh, the market, the illicit market on on addictive drugs like heroin and cocaine, etc. And there, there are some societal examples, isn't it, uh, with respect to kind of Portugal, Switzerland, and probably communities like Vancouver, etc. So who wants to probably share an example of that just to kind of outline that the criminalization activities based on what you were just saying there, uh, Alex, is probably not the way to go, but a bit more of a compassionate approach is probably uh, something that might actually work. Uh, and I think we have evidence from society to actually signify that, correct? Julia or Alex? Julia or Alex, do you want yeah. to take that? Yeah. Alex, sorry, I was, I was, uh, I thought that was directed to Alex. No, no, I, here I am. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, well, I think, I think, you know, I think there's very interesting evidence regarding, you know, like if you ask the question, what is, what is the economic and and and, and actual effect of of a war where a substance is criminalized? Um, and and one one of the things that we see is with the advent of fentanyl and carfentanyl and the opioid. Um, and sort of as, as uh, adulterants, as cheap adulterants coming out of, like, for example, labs in, around around the world that can be shipped easily, um, they're 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 illicit, uh, and uh, and yet um, you could you can put enough high, there's there's a systemic pressure to create from a chemistry manufacturing perspective highly highly concentrated uh, dosages of medications. Uh, of drugs, right? Because uh, carfentanil and fentanyl can actually be, be used as medications, but they're so profoundly uh, potent that you could, in a single suitcase, you could you you have just, just tens of thousands of doses. So um, they're really easy to traffic, and so this this pressure on, on on over the decades has caused the hyper concentration of the potency of different drug classes, and then it becomes cheap and easy to adulterate other powders or other drugs. So the drug users who might be using um, uh, heroin, for example, you start you have a little fentanyl in there, and you uh, are dealing with a class of drugs where the um, clinical efficacy in terms of the the, the the deadly dose ratio to the effective dose is very low. So, you know, if you only take four times as much heroin as you normally would, you might die. You, those things very very essential. These are potentially dangerous drugs for that sense, and. Um, the war on drugs encourages, for example, a, a, a concentration effect uh, where people are trying to traffic drugs in smaller and smaller quantities. So they, they make the drugs more and more potent. And when the drugs are more and more potent, they're easier and easier to overdose on. And so, you know, in the last two years, we have seen more people die every year from the opioid epidemic than we have seen dying at the height of HIV AIDS the plague years and as a gay man i find that astounding that more people dying every year from from od ODing on opioids than at the height of when we didn't even have um anti uh, you know retroviral medications for AIDS. and so this is this is a public health crisis of the first order and there has been generally a lack of um uh strong um like I mean, th th we know what the solutions could be, uh, and it's really time to, to, to. I mean, and I'm curious, um, Julia, to get your thoughts 
you know, here on like what what steps we could be taking uh, in order to address some of these these disastrous public health consequences. If I if I just follow on, um, you know, from from the points that Alex has made there, which I, you know, this emphasis on this kind of concentration of the potency of drugs, I think, is is really really important because that's kind of the logic of, of prohibition and the enforcement model. Um, and and just going back around to the the point you made about well, you know, the, the psychedelics are non non addictive, and and just kind of rein back slightly to some of the findings in the in the UNODC's own uh, annual uh, report, which is you know based on submissions from countries, is that you know, eighty. You know, eighty percent of drug use is actually recorded as being non-problematic. Um, mm. Globally, we have a concentration of problematic um, drug use, and that's overwhelmingly focused on opioids. And Alex has talked really there about the synthetic side of this, um, but also in terms of heroin, um, and also in terms of injecting drug use. So, injecting drug use um, of opioids is the most problematic behaviours, but it's the most concentrated. And the key challenge here, as Alex has highlighted, is that the danger really comes from prohibition, um, particularly in terms of these kind of, you know, the more the natural-based uh, heroin, morphine kind of injecting. Um, it's dangerous injecting practices. It's substances that are cut. It's people who are, you know, kind of engaged in these dangerous behaviors because their behavior is criminalized. And the challenge, you know, this is a really massive debate for us um, here right now in the UK. Um, because in Scotland and in England, we have our highest recorded levels of drug deaths on record. And this is overwhelmingly related um, to injecting drug use. And the real interesting question here, and, and just going back to the points that Alex has raised, is, well, you know, what are the options for reform? Because so far, the types of reform models that we have seen in places like Canada and, and the, the reforms and decriminalization in the U.S. has focused on cannabis. Um, which is really not, you know, the most problematic drug to be talking about here. And it's been focused on kind of consumer issues. And, and it doesn't really kind of address this wider international dimension here. The interesting countries in particular have been places like Switzerland and Portugal. Um, and what was astonishing about Switzerland and Portugal, particularly the Portu uh, sorry, the Swiss in the 1980s under Madame Ruth-Dreyfus, the, the then president, is that amid this enormous um, HIV-injecting, heroin-drug-use-related crisis in Switzerland, um, the Swiss government took these kind of very public health-led decisions. They carried out these surveys of, of who were the main kind of injecting drug users and, you know, the assumptions that it was kind of these marginalized, criminalized people. It was actually, you know, kind of middle-class people who were injecting drug users. It was professionals. It was family members. And there was a real shift in Switzerland, which was enabled by proper information, proper surveying, proper data, and by educating the public and by educating politicians and the tremendous leadership of Madame Dreyfus in taking forward um, reforms based on health-led interventions, which enabled Switzerland to move towards things around, you know, prescription heroin and these kind of models. The big challenge, and to come back to Alex's question in terms of, well, how do we move forward with reform? The challenge we have at the international level in so many of our countries is that the war on drugs is not about drugs. That's the big problem. Um, we don't have an evidence base for drugs. You know, so many of the substances that are listed under the conventions, they have never been subject to expert evaluation or the evaluations that were carried out were over 30 years old. The war on drugs is a political tool. And this is the real fight that we have going forward, is trying to put this on a more evidence-based footing. It can be done. It's been done in conservative countries, you know, relative conservative countries like Portugal. But at the moment, we're struggling over, you know, kind of 
trying to advance basic reform arguments over things like providing, and it's very, very contentious and controversial, safe injecting facilities, you know, the kind of drug consumption remodels that were, you know, rolled out in places like Vancouver. But the political backlash against this, this kind of nimbyism of, you know, not in my backyard, is a very trenchant political tool for politicians. And so long as drugs are a tool for politics rather than a focus of public health decisions, then it's very, very difficult for us to kind of break out of this this mentality of criminalization and the utility of using drug wars for other political purposes of discrimination, prejudice and marginalization. Julia, Can did I you just... ask Julia, sorry, Aaron, Julia, a question. I mean, the evidence is so overwhelming that, you know, it's a, to have a health approach to, to drugs. Um, completely, you know, it's such a, an obvious solution. Why will, the, why will the UK government not do this? Well, the UK government uh, and many, you know, I'm, I'm sure people around the world who might listen to this uh, recording have similar similar challenges in, the, in their own states, is that these governments, despite the overwhelming health evidence, the problem is that it's far, far easier to fall back with the counter-narrative that actually, you know, if we carry out these reforms, then it's going to impact the health of others. If we legalize cannabis, it's going to have health consequences. If we have prescription heroin, then it's going to have wider health consequences. And unfortunately, in so many of these debates, when we've tried to, you know, kind of move forward with the human rights arguments um, in international drug control, um, then we have, you know, statements from very, very senior figures within the, the you know, kind of UNOCD, uh, UNODC, sorry, the International Narcotics um, Control Board, saying, well, you know, the right to be free of drugs is a human right. And so the problem that we have here is that the discourses are completely binary here um and you know every health-led emphasis that we put forward the counter argument is actually the health harms caused by that change are even more immense and there's a lot of political traction in that joe and that's even without getting the insurance companies involved at least on the on the u.s side i think that that's um that's a particularly strong force within our system yeah, not so and, much in the UK. Yeah, and here um, many of the police forces do not want to criminalise people for using drugs. Yeah, that might that might be the case, and um, you know, I mean, Alex can make is far more obviously, you know, attuned to the situation in the United States, where I think the dynamics there are slightly different uh, than they are. I think the prospects for reform are so contingent on. You know, who are the civil society organizations? What are the political freedoms that civil society groups have to advocate going forward? But when we talk also about, you know, policing, there's also a huge vested interest. Um, you know, as people like Julian McCannon have pointed out, there's a huge vested interest in maintaining this. I mean, Alex just talked about incarceration and prison and, you know, the bureaucracies that benefit from us sustaining this drug war. Change means complete reorientation and re-education of the basic infrastructures of most of our societies around education, around security, and around health provision. Some of the, you know, some of the most immense resistance to change, as you'll know, Joe, comes from within the medical profession itself. Um, so, you know, this is the great challenge that we have going forward is just, you know, these very, very different national contexts, but also how the politics of the national context plays out in terms of reform prospects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Julia, just so, one last point here. Uh, and... Both you and Alex can take this, uh, answer this question. 
Um, I think before we open up the floor here, I have a couple of requests and I want to kind of get to those questions um, from the audience here. Um, in terms of the of the results from the societal kind of, uh, if we can call it experiments uh, there, both in Switzerland and Portugal, do you want to tell us a bit more about the results of that? Because the, some of the people who might listen to this may not necessarily be aware of what the results of of those uh, kind of decriminalization and 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 providing or reducing harm measures were uh, in those in those economies or societies. Do you want to tell us a bit more about what the at a high level what those results were, Julia? And as well as Alex, um, well, as well, very, feel free to chip in very quickly. Um, and there's some wonderful publications on this um, that have been done by the Open Society Foundation's um, Global Drug Policy Program, and particularly I recommend here the work of Joanne Chetta uh, at Columbia in the United States. Chetta is C S E T E. If you're interested in following this up, um, Joanne's work on places like you know Switzerland and Portugal show that. For example, in the Portuguese case with decriminalization, what this means is the non-prosecution of people who are caught in possession um, of scheduled drugs. And when you have non-prosecution and instead you have um, administrative penalties, what this enables you to do is channel more people into kind of multi-agency responses, you know, addressing issues around um, healthcare, homelessness, um, chronic dependence, and really try and reconnect with people that under situations of criminalization, that kind of stigma and intense policing doesn't allow. So what we've seen in the case of Portugal is it's enabled more people to get into treatment. It's enabled more people to move away from problematic drug use. And in the Portuguese case, it's led to a fall in rates of HIV, um, but it has not led to an increase in drug use. And this is, you know, the arguments in places like the UK, where we had a parliamentary debate yesterday, the argument of some of our politicians is that if we have any form of decriminalization, which is obviously very different from, from legalization, but if we have any form of decriminalization uh, where, in effect, we allow administrative penalties um, instead of this kind of criminal justice response, um, the argument is it will actually encourage drug use. And the reality and the evidence from Portugal is, has actually been quite the opposite. So the Portuguese model there is an interesting case study of decriminalization, and similarly in, in Switzerland. Um, where they've moved forward with this, you know, kind of emphasis on prescribing heroin and instead of, you know, people relying on criminalized markets. Again, it's a fall in kind of the negative health-related uh, associates of injecting drug use. It's about better public health outcomes. It's about reductions in HIV and other forms of blood-borne diseases. But the most important thing, and I'm sure this is something that Alex might also um, echo, is it's about reducing stigma. And the whole emphasis in criminalization is about deliberately creating stigma, which is the biggest obstacle to people getting the health services and the treatment that they so desperately need in order to be able to cope with some of their chronic problems um, of dependence. I don't know whether that's something you might echo, Alex. Yeah, and, and in some ways, as you put before, the, the, the stigma is what, what created in part or motivated the drug war. We, we know this from, at least in the United States, when Nixon announced uh, you know, a, a war on drugs. Uh, his advisor, John Ehrlichman, you know, has has said in a later interview that the Nixon campaign, um, you know, had two enemies: the anti-war left and black people. And and he said that you know we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war on uh, or blacks, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. End quote. So there, there's there's. This, this, these are not necessarily 
decisions driven by evidence, but these are, you know, um, cultures have long histories of substance use stretching back um, to uh, with psychoactive drugs, with psychedelic drugs. And um, I think that, you know, these are potentially, the, the situation here is so complex, right? And, and it's not necessarily driven by evidence, although I hope that our discourse can be informed by like really good clinical evidence and by good public policy evidence from a harm reduction perspective, as we see in places like Portugal. Fantastic. Thank you. Arun, did you have questions for us? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. At this point of time, I think we are almost nearing the end. I just want to kind of bring up a couple of folks here in the audience who have actually raised their hands um, for, to kind of ask questions. So first, in the order of, of raising hands, I just want to bring up Deepak. Uh, Deepak, I've just approved you. You should be able to connect in. Please introduce yourself and then ask the question uh, to the panelists. Thanks so much uh, for this very important discussion. I really appreciate the insights. Uh, Julia, the question really was for you on this one. Uh, as being someone that's been very close to the legalization of cannabis movement in Canada and also getting Billy Caldwell and Charlotte Caldwell their, their prescription cannabis in the UK, uh, is it is it true that the you know the CND argument that you were talking about earlier and the INCD argument is a bit of a red herring because you know we've legalized cannabis of course for medical purposes in this country for the last ten years and we've now you know uh, there's about fifty Canadians that have access to psilocybin for medical purposes so is that a bit of a red herring in that you know there isn't enough pressure on governments to be able to move and they use the INCD CND arguments. Um, as almost a blanket, because what we saw with Charlotte Caldwell in the UK and Billy's medicine was as soon as, you know, Charlotte flew to Heathrow and, you know, the medicine was taken away, the Home Secretary at the time, Sajid Javid, uh, was forced to go to hospital and give Billy his meds back. Uh, and that led to the movement around medical cannabis legalization in the UK. So just wondering if you can share some insights there on that particular topic. Yeah, that's a really, really good question. I think, you know, the, the Canadian situation is, is slightly different. And, and this very much comes down to, to kind of constitutional freedoms and constitutional protections of individual rights that you have in Canada um, that we don't actually have in the UK, which, as you know, we don't actually have a written constitution. Um, my, my own PhD student, Matt DeClerc, is doing some really interesting work at the moment, which is looking at how constitutional safeguards for the right to health plays out differently for drug policy reform options. Um, and he's looking at Canada, the UK and South Africa. Um, and I think Canada has been really, really facilitated in the progress that it has made um, around cannabis legalization and access to other substances because of the constitutional safeguards that you have in your country, if I'm correct in my understanding of this deeper around individual uh, human rights and individual freedoms, which are simply not protected here. Um, it's certainly a red herring to claim that the CND and the INCB, you know, are this major obstacle, but the whole war on drugs is a red herring. Um, and it's, but it's something that our countries cling to. I mean, when, for example, Canada or Uruguay, which is obviously legalized cannabis, um, when they took those steps, um, there was very little actually that the INCB could do. But for some countries, you know, if you're somewhere like Bolivia, which then moves ahead with something like legalization of coca cultivation, the costs of that dissensus um, within the international system is that you can be decertified by the US. Um, you could have the war on US led war on drugs turning up on your borders and you lose access to international lending. So it very much depends on which country you are in terms of how much flexibility you're able to, to exercise. The U.S. did try and wiggle around this with this uh, notion 
at the uh, 2016 uh, major uh, United Nations General Assembly special session, the UNGAS, of what's called the Brownfield Doctrine, after William Brownfield, who's the ambassador in Colombia and Afghanistan. Um, and obviously, kind of slightly humiliated by the fact that the U.S. has this very, very aggressive um, federal level uh, drug war overseas, but at home you have all these legalization and decriminalization experiments in individual states. The Brownfield Doctrine emphasizes flexibility in the interpretations of the international conventions. And that's what has actually enabled countries like Canada, Portugal, Switzerland, Uruguay, and then a number of other countries now which are moving towards legalization and decriminalization of cannabis to emphasize either the national right to health, the kind of supremacy of this kind of sovereign obligation to health, or to privacy. But the problem with the notion of flexibility is that the flexibility of Canadians to legalize cannabis is also the flexibility of somebody like Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines to interpret um, the obligations of the war on drugs far more harshly and far more severely. And that's why we've had um, the deaths and murders of so many thousands of people in the Philippines, because the flexibility to be liberal is also the flexibility to be highly punitive. Um, so I'd look very much at the kind of Canadian constitutional position um, as an answer to your question there, Deepa. But, you know, progress in the UK is urgently needed. And I think as far as I'm aware, only 10 people, uh, 10 children have had access to medical cannabis. Thank you. That's, uh, you know, definitely extremely, extremely helpful. And, you know, last comment I make is just mm. with respect to the INCB, and I was part of the expert kind of committee on that, uh, from a Canadian perspective was, you know, we basically said to the INCB in response, you know, when, when we legalized, they came back and, you know, we said, look, we're doing this in a public health approach. We've got uh, kids under the age of 18, anywhere from 12 to 18, that are using cannabis at the highest rates in the world, right? So we've got this tremendous issue. We know that cannabis is not completely a benign substance. It does have, uh, you know, implications to the developing brain. And so, you know, the argument that we made uh, was one around public health, and we're doing this in a public health approach. So I think it, it, I'd probably urge countries to, you know, use that argument. And sure enough, you know, with CND recently, as, you, as you're probably aware, we've now seen a movement on cannabis, certainly not what we need to see, but at least there's been some sort of movement on the scheduling. So, yeah, those are my comments. And again, really appreciate uh, this discussion. Thank you for being here. And, and just to add on that as well, you know, the irony, Deepa, is obviously, as I'm sure you're aware, that the UK is one of the world's leading medical, medical cannabis exporters, and the UK is also one of the uh, leading biotech entrepreneurs sectors for medical cannabis. So, uh, so the contradictions in our country are infinitely more manifest than you could possibly imagine. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Julia. Yeah, it, it it is actually a big irony, isn't it? So with that in mind, I think we will move to our next listener. Uh, Baba, do you want to unmute your microphone and, and speak and ask the question to the panelists? Hi, this is Baba here. Uh, thank you very much for a very interesting discussion. Um, but it was also a very, very one-sided discussion. And it's a one-sided discussion on the side of which sane scientific research and common sense is, which I hope I am on. Um, this war has been going on for 50 years. And the, the consequences are beyond words beyond words. I think I was listening to some of the work that Julia has done in the criminal justice system and seeing what's happening there. My question is really regarding uh, how much longer are we going to continue with this diabolical war, which was not a war on drugs. I'm glad that somebody actually said it wasn't a war on drugs. It was a political war. 
And it was a war on black and colored people as one of the main, if not the majority, victims, but not the only only victims of this. So I'm just wondering, when are our politicians at the national and international level going to wake up and stop the suffering that is being caused by this diabolical war? This is Baba, and I'm complete. Um, anybody else want to respond on that, Alex or Joe? Because um, I think, you know, Barbara and I could go off and have a long coffee and talk about this for hours. So before I do that, <laughs> does anybody else want to add anything? Well, the only thing I'll say, you know, so is that <laughs> it's a huge question. And it's it's really, an, you're, you're invoking the moral imperative here. And I, I, I will say, I, in a small way, I, I think that we can demonstrate through good, robust, rigorous clinical trial evidence that at least some of these drugs that are currently scheduled one and illegal uh, are profoundly helpful. And I I think that um, these are really separate debates, but psychedelic medicine is shown in in, in really dozens of trials to be potentially efficacious to help people get over depression and anxiety and compulsions and and trauma. and and they're still illegal. So um, you know, there there that is a potential mechanism. But um, you're, you're, to to speak to the root of your question, I think is is, is beyond is beyond the time we probably have uh, at this point. And I and I I'm, I'm really glad that you've asked it. Um, Alex, that's such a good point, and I'd just like to reiterate that really. And I I think I'm really um, yeah hopeful because the laws are changing in various countries, in small ways in various places in Oregon, the decriminalization and and the access of psychedelics um, in certain places for compassionate access, for example, people with a cancer diagnosis. And that's actually one of the places this, this work started, psychedelic-assisted therapy for that uh, existential anxiety and depression associated with, with a terminal diagnosis. Um, and I'm really heartened by the number of trials, and as Alex said, the number of universities, the number of academics who are now invested in this space and are working on it, and, and you know, I think we will change things. Um, I hope through that that route, through all the, the clinical trial data, look at, you know, Alex, that trial that you were involved with, Those that, I think, is, is certainly one way forward. And, and I'll just add that, you know, there was a time 51 years ago and, and before that there was not a war on drugs. You know, we, we can, there are people alive today who, who, who remember it well. And, um, and not only that, you know, these medicines, psychedelic, I'll speak at least for the psychedelic medicines were used widely in, in private practice and in clinical trials. We had, we had over 40,000 people receive doses of drugs like mescaline and LSD. And, and psilocybin, and um, safely with basically no major issues. And we have, even today, we look back when we look at the treatment of alcoholism, we have a meta-analysis from uh, nine, looking at many, many studies, but nine uh, large trials looking at whether or not you can treat alcoholism with with LSD and psychedelics. And the meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials from the 1950s and 60s suggests that you can, and in fact, it's a very efficacious treatment. It's one of the reasons why at Cybin we've decided to take another look at psychedelic medicine as a treatment for alcohol yes. use disorder. That that, that 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 these medicines themselves may help people 
um, get off of their dependence on alcohol, which we know is a debilitating um, can be a debilitating condition with massive yeah. costs both to the individual, their families, and to the wider community. And and so you know um, we need to do that hard clinical and, and scientific work, but the public policy debate um, has shifted profoundly here, at least in the United States, on the policing front, and I think it's it's tied into this question of the war on drugs and to the question of massive incarceration. And um, I, I, I think that um, we, if we can imagine a time before this war on drugs came into effect, we can imagine a time after it ends. Um, if I was to just really depress everybody, um, I would probably suggest that the direction of travel at the international level is against reform. And the clues really in the name UNODC, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, and what we've seen in particular in the 90s, 1990s onwards has been this, you know, ever tightening nexus between, on the one hand, drugs, but then also the association with terrorism, money laundering, organized crime. And that's really, really intensifying in terms of, you know, kind of international agreements um, around state cooperation to combat. And as long as we have this association between drugs and organized criminality and money laundering, then there is going to be this kind of <clears throat> continued embedding of the principal policy actors in drug policy, um, which isn't uh, medical professionals, um, it isn't people with lived experience, uh, it's security actors, uh, it's the military, and it's the police. So, you know, how do we kind of move forward with that system? The radical in me would suggest that the actual big problem here is the UNODC. Um, you know, this is a, a United Nations body which oversees such a great plethora of different aspects um, here, which really doesn't make it an expert or a specialist in any way whatsoever on drugs. Um, and maybe some of the responsibilities of the UN ODC could be broken down and distributed to other UN agencies and arms, such as uh, UNDP. Um, so we could say abolish the UN ODC. Um, we could say the real step forward has to be around treaty reform, because without international treaty reform, um, it's going to be very, very difficult for us to advance um, national level reforms. On a more optimistic trend, I'd say, um, Baba, that the, maybe the opportunities going forward, as we were talking about before with DEPA, it's through, you know, kind of legal and constitutional challenges at national levels. Uh, it's about transnational mobilization. We've seen some fantastic progress and joining up of civil society organizations. Um, and I think it's also, you know, the, the, the kind of gradual building up through social media and platforms um, such as this that's been run by, you know, Arun and Jojo. And I'd like to thank them very much for the opportunity for us to be able to have this discussion because, you know, this is the way forward is through the kind of education, through the discussion um, and through trying to present the evidence to a wider audience and <clears throat> changing people's understanding. So, um, so with that, I think we have our last uh, listener question, Jade. Uh, Hi, Jade. Do you want to unmute and introduce yourself sure. to the panelists? Sure, this is my first time on uh, Twitter Spaces, so just wanted to also acknowledge uh, my name is Jade Antonio-Ullman. I'm softly because I'm not back. And, um, Jade, your volume is a bit muffled, actually. We can't, uh, at least I can't hear you very well. Can you? Is that, is that better? Is that better? It, it seems a yeah. bit better, yes. Okay. I just wanted to also acknowledge that today is Juneteenth, which is the liberation of the United States from slavery. So it's a very special day today as well. Just, I turned out, well, actually, I'm sorry, it is tomorrow in the United States. But we celebrate it today 
in terms of our country. It's the first time that organizations acknowledge this as a national holiday. So MAPS, I work for MAPS, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and we got our day off today. And I just wanted to say thank you. It's wonderful to meet you all. And here we have an announcement, so I will, I will mute again. My first time speaking. Thanks so much for having me. Um, also, I just wanted to say, great to hear you, Dr. Belter, Dr. Alex, and um, yeah, I know. Okay, thank you. Okay. Hi, Jade. Jade, thanks, thanks for that. It's nice to hear your voice again. Hi there. Jojo, do you have any closing comments? Also, from... I just wanted to just go on, Jade. Just wanted to say one last thing that we really prefer people utilizing the word MDMA and not ecstasy. So, thanks you, Alex, for communicating that. But I know the earlier speaker from the UK didn't use the word ecstasy. I just wanted to mention that. Thank you so much. That's it. Thank you. Yeah, that's very, very helpful. Um, and Matt, what a great organization MAPS is. Absolutely fantastic. Also, I just want to say the UK will probably go first before the EMA to make MDMA legal. Um, so we have a wonderful program to support veterans in the UK through the King's College um, site, which is, um, there was one other quick thing I was going to say, but I forgot it, through the MHRA. So the MHRA will be going first. So it's exciting. Just thanks everyone for all your support and leadership. I'm complete. Jojo, do you want to go with any other comments here before we close? Oh, I I just want to thank everybody who's who's um, participated not only today but um, we've been in touch with most of you throughout the course of of building the psychedelic series, which is how we've gotten to know you and know so much about this topic in general. And it's it's always so enlightening. Um, it's it's always. Um, eye-opening and we really appreciate not only your participation with us but what you do as you're doing this is your your everyday jobs and a career for life so thank you very much um, for your participation your knowledge and your power thank you yeah and and from my side thank you so much uh julia joe and and alex for actually taking the time uh on such short notice to actually come and talk to us here and we do know that there were quite a few number of people who actually wanted to listen to this recording offline which is the reason why we are recording it uh because of the time zone differences etc so hopefully this will this will reach them and it'll also educate quite a few number of people um who haven't been exposed to this so thank you so much thank you very much uh for having me and Aaron and Jojo please keep up the excellent work because you're building communities and you're giving us all the chance to to chat and interact and, and hear from people like Jade and Baba and Deepa. So thank you ever so much. And I'm off now to watch the second half of the England-Scotland soccer match. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I agree. Thank you very much indeed. Aaron and Jojo, brilliant podcast. Yeah, the Scraps podcast, everybody. It's great. Thanks, thank you. This has been, ter- this has been terrific. Um, and, and take care, everyone. Thanks so much. Thank you, Alex.